Welcome back to the Ask Us Anything podcast. My name is Dave, and I am the host for this podcast. And today we have an excellent question that comes into us from Cindy. And Cindy asks us a very convicting question. Uh, can you help us understand the dangers of gossip, please? Well, Cindy, you ask a great question. Uh, James 3, 5 through 12 says this. So also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. (coughs) My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Control of the tongue is one of the tests of true religion that James lists at the conclusion of his first chapter. James has already appealed in this letter to Christians to live their faith by praying for wisdom, listening to the word, and acting on it in the first chapter. In James 1, 26-27, he says, If anyone considers himself religious... It does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and falseless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Almost immediately, James hints that it may be difficult to prove one's faith is genuine. It's far too easy to offer kind wishes keep warm and well-fed, and do nothing to help. But when James describes a man who utters kind words and does nothing, we squirm. With the hints of poor performance in James 2 become a plain declaration of human inability in James 3. James 1 says that a religious man must keep a tight rein on his tongue in James 1.26. And yet now, James says in James 3.8, No man can tame the tongue. And James even says that not many of you should be teachers in James 3.1. And he opens this chapter with a warning that alarms teachers everywhere when he says in the very first verse, Not many of you should presume to be teachers because we who teach will be judged more strictly. Every time a teacher rises to explain this verse, uh, they invite judgment on themselves. Well, yay for me, right? Right, guys? But seriously, some have suggested that James address this warning to particular problems in his church. Perhaps unqualified men or women sought to usurp church authority. Perhaps vain people sought the honor of the public position of teacher. After all, Jesus did warn about the Pharisees who loved to be called rabbi, my teacher or father, in Matthew 23, 6-10. It's true that only qualified people should teach, and you should only listen to qualified people who are able to teach. 
And yet it's also true that some people get a thrill from standing before an attentive audience. They want the, the applause and the clamor of the congregation or the audience. But these points are not the topic of James 3. James's theme is that we must tame the tongue, but we cannot do so. Teachers make an excellent taste case of this issue. Teachers should certainly guard their speech. They are especially vulnerable to failures of speech because their role demands they speak so much. More words means more errors. As we grow accustomed to public speaking, we become careless. When asked to offer an opinion, we tend to comply, even if we have scant qualifications and little factual basis to do so. Humor is a dangerous gift. It pleases the crowd, but can easily wound or mislead. Too many laughs come at someone else's expense. Public speech before a frequently captive audience provides temptations to virtually every form of evil speech and arrogance and domination over students' anger, pettiness, that contradiction or inattention, slander and meanness towards absent opponents, flattery of students for the sake of vainglory. These problems are all worse than the church since teachers are expected to be models of virtue, and so teachers are subject to judgment. But James does not accuse teachers of being especially wicked. He says, and he continues explaining, we all stumble in many ways. No one can control the tongue. If anyone could, he would be faultless and perfect and, and able to keep his whole body in check. The tongue daily demonstrates both our sinfulness and our inability to reform ourselves. Failures of the tongue are frequent and public and hence undeniable. Scripture has a long list of sins of the tongue to describe human fallenness. Isaiah 6.5 says, When Isaiah met the Lord in the temple, the prophet bewailed his doom, crying, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips. In Psalm 34.12-13, when the psalmist offered counsel for those who long for a good life, he said, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. The Bible condemns recreational speech such as gossip and coarse jesting. Proverbs 20:19 says, A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. Gossip also appears in Paul's list of human vices in Romans 1:29 and 2 Corinthians 12:20. And when Paul concludes his indictment of human sin, he turns to the tongue in Romans 3:10 through 14. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The tongue is so difficult to control that anyone who does it must have mastered himself completely, James 3.2 says. For most of us, our mouth is our undoing. Proverbs 18, 6-7 says, A fool's lips bring him strife, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his undoing, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Even gifts of the tongue are dangerous. The pervasive tongue can convince ordinary people of almost anything. What self-control it takes to wield that tool, that weapon, to bless others and not to seek personal gain. The witty tongue grants people the sweet gift of laughter, but human often humor often wounds somebody. 
If anyone can control the powers of persuasion and humor, he will possess singular self-mastery. In other words, they would be perfect. Next, let's consider the tongue compared to a bit, a rudder, and a flame. James uses three analogies to illustrate the influence of the tongue. James 3, 3-5 says, When we put bits in, into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is but a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by such a small part, spark. The tongue, he says, is like a horse's bit, a ship's rudder, and a fire among trees. The tongue rests in the human mouth much as the bit is in the horse's mouth in both cases. A small thing moves and controls a large body. The tongue is like the rudder of a ship. Just as a small part of a ship turns a hull, so the tongue has great influence on the whole person. The tongue is like a spark of fire in the woods. Even as a small spark can start a great fire, so the tongue can set fire to relationships or communities. Bits and rudders were common in antiquity, if they're not today. When James was writing, he, he might have used something familiar today, like a steering wheel on a car, but his point would remain the same. The tongue is most influential. As a bit directs a horse and a rudder directs a ship, so the tongue directs human life. What we do follows what we say. Both our intended speech, our thoughts, and our spoken words direct our actions. One writer says James' purpose is not to warn against the hasty or the impure or the lying tongue, but to make the positive point that control of the tongue leads to a master control of ourselves. Just as a bit and rudder really do master the violence of a horse and of the storm, so the tongue is a key factor in controlled living. Nothing on this view is more vital than the control of the tongue. It is not that the person is strong enough to control the tongue is therefore also strong enough for every other battle. It's rather that winning this battle is itself the winning of all battles. Therefore, we should work hard to master the tongue. It is the key of self-mastery. This idea is appealing in one way since it directs human effort to one central task. Unfortunately, this view runs against the rest of the Bible. Jesus does not say control the tongue and you control all. He says your heart controls your tongue and, a sp and your speech. Matthew 12, 33-35 A tree is recognized by its fruit. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in him. At first glance, James seems to say that the person who controls the unruly tongue can surely control the other more easily tamed members of the body. And Jesus certainly agrees that control of the tongue is important when he says that we will be acquitted or condemned by our words in Matthew 12:37. But we must distinguish the first glance from the final analysis. Notice that James' illustrations seem to have two parts, the bit in the horse, the rudder in the ship, careful review reveals that the analogies assume a third part, an agent that exercises its will through the bit, the rudder, and the tongue. For the horse, a rider uses the bit to direct his mouth. For the rudder, the pilot expresses his will through the rudder to guide the ship. For the tongue, the will of a man expresses itself in speech that guides its action. 
So James actually agrees with Jesus. The heart moves the tongue. Therefore, we cannot simply decide by a resolution of the will to control the tongue, for the heart controls our resolutions. We'll return to that here shortly. But for now, James is interested in the tongue and its reckless power. And he says, literally, behold, the size of a fire that sets ablaze. What size of a forest? James 3.5 says. That is, a small fire can start a great fire that rages throughout the countryside. Out in the woods, a little carelessness with fire can cause enormous damage. If a gust of wind blows over the embers of a dying fire and lifts a spark into the trees or brush, an entire hillside may soon be set ablaze. A moment of carelessness can cause terrible damage. The tongue is like a fire when rumors and gossip spread, as we say, like wildfire. The Bible also links gossip and fire. Proverbs 16, 27 through 28. A scoundrel plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A perverse man stirs up dissension, and gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 20, 26 through 22 says, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to a fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's innermost parts. James rightly says in James 3.6 that the tongue is a fire. Its propensity to gossip and its capacity to suggest sin establish it as a source of great wickedness. It stains the whole body. It sets all of life on fire and is itself set on fire. James describes the tongue in three ways. First, its character. The tongue is a micronism, microcosm, a concentration point of the world's evils. James says that the tongue is a world of evil among all the parts in James 3.6. The tongue is not necessarily more evil than the other members of the body, but speech is involved in almost every form of wickedness, where themselves are often evil. But we also add wicked words to wicked deeds. Before we strike someone, we may curse him or abuse him. Before we rob someone, we plan it with words or excuse it with words. And so too, this tongue has a central place in this world's evils. And yet the tongue is not simply involved in evil. It also has great influence. Let's talk about its influence. The tongue corrupts the whole body, that is, the whole person. James in James 3.6 says, it corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of life on fire. The tongue plans evil and utters hateful thoughts. We say someone is selfish or lazy because we think it, and when we say it, we think it all the more. And thus the tongue sets the whole course of the cycle of life on fire. Throughout the changing circumstances of life, the tongue continues to create evil. When young, we whine. When old, we criticize. When we fail, we excuse ourselves and blame others. When we succeed, our children succeed. We foul it up by boasting. Through every turn of life, the tongue promotes evil. Jesus says in Matthew eleven or fifteen eleven, What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And so our mouths corrupt us. The tongue can create evil. Of course, all evils ultimately come from the heart, as Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. Next, let's talk about its allegiance. In one sense, the evils of the tongue flow from the heart. In another sense, James says that Satan himself gives the tongue its destructive power. Hell sets the tongue on fire, James 3, 6 says. 
It's a wonder why the tongue generates so much trouble. James answers that it isn't set on fire by hell itself. Now James begins the next verse with a word for. That shows that he's explaining what he just said. By this we know that the tongue is inflamed by hell itself. Mankind can tame anything but the tongue. Every kind of animal, James 3, 7 through 8 says, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So the tongue is restless. It's unstable. It's liable to break out at any time. It is half tame at best. At an aquarium we may behold whales, dolphins, and seals heeding human commands. At the circus we may see birds, horses, camels, elephants, and even tigers, tigers perform their routines. If an animal fails to perform, the trainer barks commands to bring it back in line. But who can force the tongue back into line? There's a touch of poetry in James' answer. Every kind of beast can be tamed by humankind, but no one among humans can tame the tongue. Humankind subdues every kind of animal, but it cannot subdue itself. James' literal phrasing is a bit awkward. No one is able to tame the tongue among humans. This stilted language makes us think. Human nature cannot control the tongue, and yet the tongue can be tamed. Who then will tame the tongue? Augustine explains that, that James does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no man. So that when it is tamed, we admit that it was done by the mercy of God, the assistance of God, and by the grace of God. And this clarifies James' pessimism about the tongue. James says two things. The tongue has vast influence, and so we ought to control it. And yet no human can tame the tongue. This is a paradox. James says that we must do something that we cannot do. And there are two approaches to this problem. First, we can soften James' message. He means it almost it's almost impossible to tame the tongue, therefore we must redouble our efforts. This view says, since the tongue is the key to holy living, we must bend every effort to control it. For if we do, we control all. And James' illustrations seem to support this view. Just as a bit turns a large horse, just as a rudder turns a large ship, so the tongue the lives of men. One writer compares the tongue to a master switch. The words of the tongue forms the control of our thoughts and our plans. If the tongue were well under control, so that it refused to formulate words of self-pity or thoughts of anger, then these things are cut down before they have a chance to live. Rudders certainly are important. During World War II, the mightiest German battleship, the Bismarck, sank because its rudder failed Germany. It launched the Bismarck to attack the Allied shipping. And when the British Navy intercepted it, the Bismarck sank the hood, the pride of British, the British's Navy, in less than 10 minutes. The British put everything into a counterattack while the Bismarck, lightly damaged, steamed a harbor. But one tiny plane dropped a torpedo that struck and irreparably damaged the Bismarck's rudder. The Bismarck could only go in circles. Within hours, dozens of ships and planes brought all their firepower against one ship until it sank. Metaphorical rudders are critical. A misdirected chief officer can wreak havoc upon a corporation. A heedless pastor can decimate a church. The first view says it's very difficult, but we can also and must control the tongue, for it is the rudder of life. The second view interprets James's words literally. It says it would be good to tame the tongue, but James says we cannot. Therefore, we must turn elsewhere for help. No one has sufficient self-control to govern the tongue. James 3.2 says, We all stumble in many ways. No one, no mere human, James says in James 3.8, can tame the tongue.
Let's talk now about the inconsistency of the tongue and the consistency of God. So the tongue is hopelessly inconsistent. It blesses God one minute and it curses mankind the next. James 3, 9-12 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. One minute we use the tongue to bless the Lord, the next we use it to curse our fellow man. Even though God fashioned mankind in his likeness, such behavior is absurd. As absurd as a spring that pours out both fresh and salty water, as absurd as a single tree that bears olives and figs. Springs are consistent. They pour out water, the same clear water, often at nearly the same temperature all year long. Olive trees keep putting out olives, and yet the tongue is like a spring that vacillates between salty and clear water, or like a tree that bears peaches one day and papayas the next. James simply says, My brothers, this ought not to be so. Notice that James chides our inconsistency, even though he knows that no one can consistently control the tongue. He rebukes us because the duty of watching our words remains. Since a small statement can cause great harm, we must guard our speech. We must strive to bless God and mankind with our tongues. We must, and yet we cannot. No human can tame the tongue. We must admit that James does not solve this riddle in this passage. For the moment, he leaves us in tension, which he relieves sometime later in James 4, 6-10. In this, James follows the pattern of Jesus who is willing to let his teaching dangle without the kind of resolution we like. For example, the Sermon on the Mount ends with this great threat. Those who build on a foundation other than Christ will see their their house fall with a great crash in Matthew 7, 26-27. In James 4.10, James resolves this riddle when he promises that God will exalt all those who humble themselves before him. That is, if we humbly admit our inability, he will graciously forgive us. Even before we reach that moment, other scriptures teach us our inability. We cannot control the tongue. Only God can. Even with the Spirit's help, the taming is only partial. And yet, it's also real. It's also more potent than our efforts at self-mastery. Once we realize that God controlled what we cannot, we can properly face the failures of speech that reflect the failures of the heart. For example, the proud uses the tongue to deny every sin in a need for redemption. We deny our sin. Our spouse says, you're so grouchy today, what's the matter? And we reply, I'm only grouchy when you heck bother me with your petty criticisms. We claim that we're no worse than anyone else. We say, I admit I'm grouchy occasionally, but I miss your congeniality compared to some. We claim our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. We say, yes, I get grumpy when I'm exhausted, but I'm usually very agreeable. We offer no self-defense, but rather condemn ourselves and give in to despair. But there's a better way than this. First, let heart and tongue admit that God is holy and that we should aspire to his holiness. And second, since God is not satisfied by mere aspirations, we should ask God to forgive our failings and meager achievements. Third, let us believe in him and receive the loving mercy of God. You see, he loves us as a father loves his children, flaws and all. Or to change the metaphor, God loves us as a husband loves his wife, flaws and all. A good husband loves his wife, even as the beauty of youth fades. His wife may lament that her skin is getting loose and blotchy, but the good husband says, I don't love your skin, 
I love you. Physical beauty is attractive, but a beloved wife does not fear the fading of beauty because she knows her beauty is not the final cause of her husband's love. Since God's love is purer than that of any husband, we should hope in him. His love also gives us direction for our relationships. Jesus said in John 13, 35, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Good works and holiness please God, even as the traits of an excellent wife please her husband. But God is a faithful husband, loves his bride, flaws and all. In this supremely important way, our moral achievements count for nothing. They neither earn God's love, nor do they guarantee it. There is no deed, no accomplishment that makes God suddenly notice or favor us. He loves us for his own reasons, not for our own merits. And yet if we love the Lord, we do aspire to holiness. You see, we all do stumble and utter words that we quickly wish we hadn't said. And yet even so, we strive to please God whom we love. We do this even if our failures do not jeopardize that love. When we fail, we petition God for grace to renew and to purify us as we appropriate his grace. We live without fear, knowing God will not disown his children for their lapses. Even in their failures, we remain confident that if we believe in God, he has given us life by the gospel. The gospel word implanted in us saves us. Our tongue may be inconsistent, but our status in Christ is not. Our performance does not affect God's love for us. By faith, God has delivered us, in principle, from bondage to a misguided tongue. Our speech only fitfully adorns our profession of faith. You see, we're not totally new, but we are genuinely new. By God's grace, let us use our tongues to bless the Lord, whom he has made us in our image. And so, here's four ways, briefly, to put gossip in this place. Be a model of love and solidarity. Ephesians 4.21 9 Ephesians 4:29 says, "Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the needs of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear." See, every time you gossip with someone, you're modeling that behavior. The first step in eradicating gossip lies in showing what healthy communication looks like. That means you need to share information with only those who can legitimately contribute contribute to it. Immediately shut down gossip when you hear it. Protect the victims of gossip. Define it. Identify what gossip is and isn't can be difficult. Here are some brief definitions to help you get started. Rumor. Any unverified information. Slander. False or malicious information with the intent to harm. Gossip. That sensational talk passed on because it's juicy in nature. Whether it's true, whether it's a rumor, or whether it's a slander. Third, communicate its significance. It couldn't be more clear from the verse that opened up that God takes the issue of gossip very seriously. In John 17, we see Jesus praying for the church. And his number one concern is that we will be unified in John 17, 22-23 around his word. You see, pastors need to be champions of unity and stalwart critics of anything that would jeopardize that togetherness. That means we need to preach strongly, and we need to also preach about the evils of gossip. So here's some here's some verses. Exodus 23.1 should not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. We've already read James 1.26, but it says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James 4.11 Do not speak against one another. 
He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Proverbs 10.18 He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. Proverbs 11.13 He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Proverbs 16.28 A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 26.20 For a lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiet downs. The next thing is for pastors and ministry leaders and those serving in the local church. Cover gossip in your discipleship problem program. Gossip isn't one of those things we just stop doing. We are set free from gossip at the same place where information and spiritual empowerment intersect. Keeping a rein on our tongues is such an integral part of spiritual maturity that it's worth creating a curriculum that everyone goes through that should talk about, you know, how do we engage in our speech? How are we supposed to talk to one another? These classes can be used in youth groups, small groups, and Sunday school classes. The important thing is to ensure that you have a systematic plan in place to help your church members understand gossip's significance in a slave platform to talk through its implications. We don't have to accept gossip. We need to recognize that gossip is contrary to the gospel. It is love and acceptance that creates life-changing communities through the gospel. Whispered shame is a terrible motivator and a destructive habit. If we want to reinforce real unity in our local churches, we need to work on talking up each other's strengths and encouraging each other even in the midst of our weakness and failings, even when we don't feel like we're doing very well. Gossip is a huge problem in the church, and sometimes gossip is very stealthy. Satan has a slick marketing trick that he sells to Christians. We don't call gossip its name. We like to call it gossip by its euphemisms, like sharing our concerns or venting to a brother or sister. We gossip when we divulge unnecessary details and prayer requests, as if God needs to be brought up to speed on the entire situation. We like to think we're in the clear, but we know that the information is true and we are simply being honest and telling it like it is. But Frank Clark correctly stated that gossip needn't be false to be evil. There's a lot of truth that shouldn't be passed around. So the Bible is very clear about gossip. We've we've discussed this in depth. But most of us do not lump gossip in with hate, with murder, and deception. But the church at Corinth also had an ugly list of problems, and gossip made the list. 2 Corinthians 2.20 says, For I am afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. I am afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. If Paul were to write a letter to the modern church, he would surely include gossip in his list of rebukes. A follower of Jesus certainly should not spread gossip any further. Gossip is a parasite that requires a host organism to survive. Don't give gossip a place to live. Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 26.20, Fire goes out without wood and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. So think of how many times you believed something to be true only to find out when the, that the information was mostly or even totally wrong. I find it interesting that the threat of libel or even slander lawsuit will cause us to be cautious about our remarks in the public square. How naive are we to think it's okay to denigrate a child of God 
and somehow think that there are no repercussions to that action. Are we more concerned about the people's court than the kingdom's court? You see, the point of this episode is to get us to understand many of us, we have such a low view of sin. We think that oh, all is well. You know, I'm not gossiping. I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. I'm not resentful. But do you even have the thoughts about another person? Because what Jesus is talking about in passages like Luke 6.45 is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So those thoughts that you think that you're just having in your head, those thoughts began in your heart. And you know what? The truth is, at some point, those thoughts are going to come out. They're going to bubble up. You cannot but help it. You don't have total mastery, none of us do, over ourselves. You know, the next time that you feel like you need to tell somebody how it is or whatever, think about this. How would you like it if somebody said that same thing to you? And what would you like, would you like Jesus to say that mean thing to you that you're about to say to somebody else? The, that These two statements here, these questions, are meant to get us to understand, to slow things down. Instead of responding immediately to that person, try praying for them. The Bible talks about us responding uh, to one another with, with graciousness and kindness. In fact, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, among other things as well. Pray through the, the, pray through the, the fruits of the Spirit. Ask yourself, am I being loving? Am I being gentle? Am I being kind? And so on and so forth. And uh, what you'll come to find is, most likely no. Most likely no. You know, there's an example that I'll use. I've, I've, I've said it elsewhere, just in wrapping this up. But there was a guy in a Bible study that I led, and, and uh, he took the Bible study in a different direction. And I really didn't like that. My response often was not very good. It wasn't very kind or loving or caring. But I told my pastor about this at the time, and he said, pray for the man. Pray for the man. Okay, I'll pray for him. What did God begin to do? He began to change my heart. So if there's that difficult person that you feel that you have to talk about, pray for that person. Pray for them. Pray for, pray for yourself. Pray that God would transform your heart. That's what he's going to do if you pray for that person. God's going to transform your heart. He'll use even our prayers to that end. You know, so if you feel the need to gossip about someone or just to, just to say something about someone, just to say it, why don't you just stop right there? And just say, you know what? This person is made in the image and likeness of God. If they're a Christian, they're fully loved and fully accepted by God. What is, what is Jesus going to think about this situation? What is he thinking? He ever lives, the Bible tells us, to make intercession for us. He is our advocate before the Father. And so today, more than likely, if you're like me, you've failed in this area. And the first step that you need to do is acknowledge that. You need to acknowledge that you failed, that we all have failed. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But this is why Christ has come. This is why we need the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ. 1 John 1 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, God is faithful. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promises. So we can turn to him and we can trust him. 
That's what I urge you to do today. Not to turn to yourself to and redouble your efforts at moralistic help, because that's not doing anybody any good. Instead, the point of this show today is to cast yourself upon the mercy, upon the righteousness of Christ, who alone can transform not just your tongue, but your heart. That's where you need the transformation to happen. So whether you're a gossip, or you're supposedly a former gossip, or you you think you're not gossiping, today I hope that this episode has been helpful to consider how we speak, why we speak, um, and those larger issues that are related to this one. And Cindy, I want to thank you for this excellent question. And today I want to encourage you as we wrap up uh, to check out the fir- check out the other resources that we have on Servants of Grace. Uh, we have Theology for Life, our quarterly magazine, where we cover a lot of issues through a biblical theological prism. Um, and I encourage you to check that out at servantsofgrace.org. You can click on, when you go to the, our website, click uh, Theology for Life on the menu bar. Um, you can check out our other resources that we have. We have a series through First Peter. We have daily articles on a variety of issues. We have sermons. We have several other podcasts. Um, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Ask Us Anything podcast. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you.